your work life has been so boring, it's it's hurt the show. Because you don't have anything interesting to talk about. Work-wise. Well, I, I, I have been working on something, and I've kind of been spending too much time on it, I think. Um, I kind of feel like I've been giving away time. It feels like I've been giving away time because I'm I'm measured on billable hours, which is really tough for, for Good someone old in my consulting. position. Because uh, <laughs> I like to think. I like to think through solutions because I'm, I'm at a pivotal point where if I design it the right way, the rest of the the rest of the project should go a lot smoother. And if I design it wrong, the rest of the project's going to be crappy for me. Sure. And so I'm trying to front load all this time to build it out. But part of that time is just thinking it through a little bit more. I mean, I could estimate and say all this kind of stuff and say I'm going to do ABC. But at the, at the end of the day, when I start coding, as I start to think it through, I start to want to just kind of play around with some ideas to see if maybe there's something I'm not thinking of or something Wait, I can do You mean designing better. it all up front doesn't, isn't the best way to do it? Is uh-huh. that what you're trying to say here? <laughs> no, but I did get to a point where I was. Well, I you was get over... forced into that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I got to a point where I was over engineering. I got. I recognized that I was over engineering something because my the number of classes I was creating, or at least intending to create, exploded exponentially, and it was really built around. I wanted to build something that was a little more flexible little more dynamic so i was building interfaces and then you know factories and then concrete implementations oh you you must have been fresh off of reading that uh patterns book that you still haven't given back to me that that's yeah i don't know where it's at it's somewhere <laughs> sitting on my desk right next to me well you remember you remembered you had it so you must you must be seeing it it's got to be sitting around i have somewhere. no idea what you're talking about yeah <laughs> it's not a cheap book either man yeah but, you know, I, I sat back and I looked at all these classes that I was intending to create and I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm using these classes in the wrong way. Because uh, my goal isn't so much to make something modular. I'm not, my goal isn't so much to make something that, uh, what's the right way to say this? It's like infinitely extensible. and that's, Extensible, you know, right. Uh, I'm not intending it to be instens- extensible. That, that's the key. I, I'm just intending for it to be somewhat malleable, somewhat reducing the amount of code that's kind of repeated everywhere else. Sure, like not do dumb stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, adhering to the principle of, of the simplest thing that could possibly work. Right. So I, I, I scrapped that idea. And so then I started breaking down the class structure to what I really needed. And did I really need an interface or do I just need a class that handles this? Yep. And it turns out I just needed a class to yep. handle it. Yep. Um, and, then, and then I got to a point where, because the other, the other side of this is, JavaScript component and it's a charting component. And if you look at chart.js, it has like a million options that you can do. Mm. And um, I started breaking down those options and thought I was going to create like these classes on the Salesforce side that would ultimately serialize to a JSON structure that the chart could recognize. Yeah, that's, that's a bad the, idea. The options. Uh, that's a bad object. idea. <laughs> it is, is it really? Yeah. Because the, the way JavaScript is so great in, in terms of its flexibility. I mean, there are certain parameters that can be objects or they can be an integer or they can be a function. And trying to somehow accommodate that is just not working. Plus, there's the nested hierarchy structure of all that config metadata that goes into that JavaScript structure. It was just going to create another class hierarchy of just millions of classes. So what I did is I looked at the... Can you just use a map? You can use a map, though, right? A map of string to object? Well, you could. Okay. What what I was saying is that I would have to... I basically would have 8,000 properties that I would have to kind of equivalently handle on the Apex side, just to be able to kind of set that stuff on the Apex side and then hand it over to the component. Because the idea is that I would, right now I have a component for each one of the charting components. Mm. So if I have a chart that needs to display X data, I have a chart for that. Y data, I have another component for that. 
D data, I have another component for that. What I want to do is get down to one component. Yeah. Because I had to do a lot of copy and pasting on the original implementation. I'm thinking now's the time to fix that so that it's one component and everything else drives it. So I have a good model for that now, but what I had to do is distill down what I'm actually using and what I actually need to support today. Not trying to think too far ahead of myself and go, oh, I need to support all these features that it could ever want because what if you wanted to do this? I had to kind of temper myself away from that. And so I did kind of distill it down to, to certain things. And then I noticed a lot of the, the hierarchy structure that gets nested, a lot of it is just only one instance of something else. So yeah, I might have like a property, like an option property, and maybe there's a legend property. And within that, there's an object with a bunch of properties. But it's, 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 it's a single line. It's not like there's multiples of each. So all I did was just bring all those up to the top level in my mm-hmm. Apex class so that all the properties are defined yeah. in, in a single structure. Right. And then I just map it when I get to the other side. I was thinking about this the other day, how, because what was I doing? Some, something with, I think I was working with Apex and JSON is what it was. And I, mm-hmm. I just, it reminded me of what a pain in the, and I, cause I love static languages. Like I really do prefer static languages for, uh, well, it depends on what you're doing, but for significant enterprise projects, I still like my, I mean, my go-to is going to be something on the JVM with a static language. Mm-hmm. Cause there's just, it just gives you benefits um, in terms of just com- Compile safety and also refactoring that it's just, it's just better, still better than dynamic languages. But man, when you're doing stuff like JSON and you just want to like be able to dynamically produce JSON, it, it, I mean, yeah, you can use, you can use a map, like a string to mm-hmm. object, but it's just so much easier to work with things like JSON when you're in like JavaScript or, you know, Python yeah. or whatever, something that's dynamic. You can, you don't have to predefine all these named classes, named structures to, de- to produce or, or consume, right. you know, the JSON that you want. You just slurp in the JSON and you just start calling properties and methods on it. Yeah. Because and you know what to expect. So in your code, you can essentially hard code to known property names of the, of the this JavaScript structure. You just don't have to define, predefined classes for it. Right. So that's really nice. And it's just... Although a- I did get really confused because one of the... One of the plugins for this chart.js was something that supported some, some better da- uh, label handling. And uh, one of the properties was all lowercase, even though it's two words. And I usually use camel case for those. And most, most of the chart.js framework use camel case for their properties. So it was odd when I saw in the documentation and in the code that this wasn't camel case. So I was, it, it's things like that where strongly typed and, and case sensitivity is important to me. Yeah. But when I'm in a language that doesn't care or I see something where someone didn't follow that, that uh, pattern or spec or style. Yeah, convention, I guess. Convention, yeah. yeah it, it really throws me off big yeah. time. But I'm, I was using that um, gauge that I showed you the other day. I think, I, I think I'm using Chart.js for that. Wasn't that Chart.js? I think so, yeah. yeah. That was pretty cool. I mean, it doesn't it's... have a gauge, so kudos on that because you, you have to basically chop off half of a donut chart. Yeah, but you and can... And then draw, custom draw a, well, they a needle. It's, it's just there. Is it a donut chart? I think it's a donut I chart. I guess that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, right. And then there's, there's, you could just using it standard options, you can make it draw. Or it's a, a pie with a, with an internal like radius. That. Yeah. That's, yeah. And then, but the harder part actually was then drawing, I had to draw a, the needle. Yeah. For the, for the gauge. Cause it's, you know, they want it to look like a car, a car gauge or whatever, or just some kind of, you know, gauge with the, the needle that points to some specific value. Do that you find, do you find part. those charts? It seems like everyone wants some kind of gauge chart, and I don't know if that comes from the type of metaphors people use in in sales and business, or it's just it's just a good chart. I don't, actually, I, I mean, I see people misusing charts all the time, like oh. using like something 
using a pie chart when they should be using like a like some kind of Pareto chart or something that it's just people misuse stuff all the time. And and most times I see them using gauges, they're misusing because I mean, look, think about the metaphor of a gauge. Gauges are usually I mean, the reason like a lot of gauges have green, yellow, and red is to show you like the safe zones. Like you mm-hmm. on a gauge, you never want to push the needle past its limit because you're almost always going to blow something up. Something's going to explode or drop out of your car or you know, you're going to blow it, you're going to be uh, Homer Simpson blowing up the, you know, the nuclear plant or something. <laughs> but people want to use gauges to show like the, to show like, you know, hitting your goals when you just max that gauge out. Yeah. Like that's that, the goal is to max. That's, that's kind of my problem with the a, gauge It's chart. a bad metaphor. It is. It really is. But I just, I was wondering if I was alone on that because I. No, you're not I, alone. I've always thought that where's the red zone? Because I'm, I'm pushing this needle and all the, the green part is just growing and growing. <laughs> and I'm like, that seems wrong. <laughs> this shouldn't be a gauge. Just thinking of the green part growing and growing is what's wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so I'm doing um I'm doing some a little bit of ISV type stuff back in uh App Exchange world land, I guess. ISV. Yeah, with security reviews and wow. all kinds of stuff. Just helping some people out, but it's been it's been a couple of years since I've done ISV type work. Man, there's and did, I don't know if you saw someone posted today in the Slack about problems they're having with basically with packages with namespaces and potential like speaking of JSON, JSON, JSON serialization. Yeah, yeah, bugs if there's namespaces involved. And I and this I don't know. This is one of those things. I, I've I've joined this project and like there's just oh my god, there's so many problems uh, with just how things are being done and and processes and the code itself and. So I'm, I'm still in the, I'm still in the stage where I'm just like, I'm still trying to absorb just all the, I guess, I don't know, the the app itself, how it works, how the, how the code works, how it's structured and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm seeing, um, they, they have, there's these like scripts to try to automate stuff, but I feel like, ah, it's just, it's doing stuff in the wrong way. And one of the things it does is it, it manually, it manually uh, transforms the package prefix. So people are writing code with the package prefix, mm-hmm. but it's like the prefix for their own personal developer org. And then so they have a, before they can deploy this into the into the package org, mm-hmm. the official package org they use, they have a script that goes through all the source code and replaces the um, the package mm-hmm. prefixes to the, to the prefix that the actual packaging org uses. And I'm just like, this is, and I know there's, I am thinking back, you know, I've, I've been reconstituting some brain cells. I've, I do remember on, I think it's JavaScript or things that, because, okay, because when you, when you put code in a package org, it automatically will prefix static things it knows about. Right. So your Apex, you know, Visual Force, and I don't, I don't even know how it handles Lightning. I assume that stuff gets all prefixed too. But I do recall, like, there was, there's areas where, like, we had JavaScript or something that, the packaging whole system didn't really know about. So you had to actually, um, you had to prefix those things yourself or something like that. I can't remember. Maybe, maybe it was like dynamic visual force or something where it, it didn't, I'm tunneling like identifiers in under in, into strings and things mm-hmm. that it's not looking at. Cause you know, to, to the packaging thing, I mean, apex strings are just, are, they're, um, they're, uh, what's the word? They're just, they're, it's like a black box. They don't, they don't no. see, they don't look into them to look for, identifiers and package so some of those things i did but this is just like they're 
they're doing all this package transforming manually. I'm just like, I got to figure out why they're doing that. I mean, there might've been some reason, but it just seems completely wrong. But yeah, that thing today, and you know, it's just like, yeah, the, because the packet, the prefix is, and I don't know if the leaky, and we use this term leaky abstraction. I don't even know if it's a, it's not really a leaky abstraction. It's just, it's just something that isn't as consistent as what it needs to be. There's like, yeah, because it does, it magically does those things for you. It, it prefixes all of your identifiers and any references you have to anything, it prefixes those references too. It's all magic, right? Oh yeah, just don't worry about it. It'll, it's all going to work. Well, except when it doesn't. And then, and then you're in ISV hell because you can't get logs. And <laughs> I, can't remember the, I can't remember the situation this person was going through, but it's kind of a mess because yeah, you couldn't get logs. It's complete black box. You can't really see what's going on. And then you're back to, well, only thing I can do is just reach out to people that may have the capability within Salesforce to figure something out for you or, or create a case. Right. So, ugh, I'm sold. I, I don't really like, I would not want to be a full-time ISV like developer. No? There's just too many, no, there's too many problems with it. I mean, again. What's, what's the talk, alternative? Talk to, listen to some of these guys that do that. It's, it's, a, it's, just, a, it's, an, it's just ongoing frustrations. It's in, and it gets to where it's, it gets hard to help your customers. Yeah, I think the hard part, well, I, I guess scratch orgs are meant to kind of solve some of that and the fact that you should be able to create an environment that matches whatever environment you're trying to troubleshoot in, ideally. Yeah. Um, but I think right now there's really no easy button to do that. You pretty much have to gather, the, gather all, the in, all the information, set up your features, set up this, the... Uh, I lost the word. Scratch org. <laughs> it escaped me instantly. Set up the scratch org and then you can, you can run your test. But even then, the, like I, I think I said this before, the metadata and data in Salesforce is such a blurry line. It's, it's hard to know. It's hard to configure an environment that, exact, that is exactly the same. You have a mixture of some, some things that are technically config and technically metadata that exists as data. And you have some things that are true metadata. And so trying to create an environment and create all the different scenarios, it's really tough. Right, because I don't know if this has changed. I, I think now you can. Oh gosh, before you could not package data with a. Package. Well, you can with a metadata custom metadata object, so that gets packaged with it. Uh, if it's yeah, if it's the new what's the new metadata thing called? Um, it's a it's a custom custom metadata. metadata that's what yeah. It's, yeah yeah. Um, but that's actually kind of not data. It's actually it's metadata. Right. It's records, but they're packaged with the metadata. Yeah. Which that was one of the, because I remember when custom metadata came out, it's like people were struggling to understand, like, because it was hard, it was, especially when it came out, like, it was not ready when it came out. Like, the tools to actually work with it and edit it and everything just were not there. Um, and they still may not be, I'm not sure. I think it's gotten better, but people were just confused about, like, what is, what is better about this? But one of the things that's better about it is if this is, suits your use case, it's, it's packageable and it's deployable along mm-hmm. with. I mean, even if you're not use, doing it in an ISV or like a, a managed package context, just, you know, enterprise org, you can, uh, you can push around your, your metadata, your custom settings mm-hmm. in, in your deployments. So that's, yeah. that's the, the other advantage is that if you're migrating or creating developer sandboxes that don't traditionally bring over data, because it's metadata, that, those, that does come in. Yeah. So prior, when we had like custom settings and that was our only option, we would have to migrate the custom settings into our dev orgs because no data came over. Yeah. And so it's it's things like that yeah. that that just kind of make 
make it kind of difficult to set up a true environment that matches production. Speaking of that, though, I, I hope they don't take away the regular custom settings because those custom settings are still easier for certain use cases. Yeah, they're easier, especially when you're talking settings that apply directly to a user. But I've had issues with that too. Like is that when I try to use them as true user settings, it, it doesn't seem to work very well. Do you use that, the hierarchy yeah. um, and that doesn't work for you? It, it works, but it, I've had issues where it just didn't work or I tried to update something and it wasn't in the right mm-hmm. context and it didn't want to update because users are not supposed to be updating that or I don't remember what it was, but Sounds like I'd used it <clears throat> and, and got burned by it. So I, I very cautiously approach it nowadays. I think, I think there's a good chance you didn't know what you're doing. That's, that's possible too. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Yeah. But also with um, with custom setting or with with custom metadata, is that what it's called? Yeah, it's called. Or is it MDT? No. I, what, what well, we MDT is is the is the so where we have underscore underscore c whatever you want to call it the suffix prefix yeah uh, suffix Brief, suffix yeah yeah suffix the suffix is is MTD so it'll be underscore underscore MTD MDT do you mean MD metadata MTD. type MTD MTD. You're, you're it's a combination with, of, of an M, a T, and a D. <laughs> okay. In whatever order, it's a combination of that. Right. So what I was going to say was the one thing that's challenging with those, I would think from an ISV perspective, is you know you you install a package, it it comes with the custom metadata records in it. Mm-hmm. But the, but then if the subscriber or what are they called, installer, subscriber, whatever, if they edit, can they if they edit those, then what happens when you know, you push another version of your package, does it, does it overwrite them? It shouldn't. So you can define certain fields as editable by the user or by the admin. Custom, you're talking about custom metadata? Custom metadata. Okay. Okay. Um, so you can lock things down to where only you can change them and they're part of your package, and then you can enable certain Well, let's parts say it's enabled. They can change, they can change, they can add records, you know, edit them. What happens when they, you install the next version? That's a good question because yeah. I'm not in that world, but I assume that it does not override it, but that's a, a big assume. This stuff, because Salesforce has, has actually added some capability to how you can evolve packages over time, they, it, it's made it more complex, but it's, it's, I mean, it solved some problems. But it's also created some problems just because it's more complex now. And you, mm-hmm. have to like, you have to think more about Because before it's just like, nope, you're not changing anything ever. <laughs> and now it's like, oh no, we're going to let you change some, change some stuff, but it's going to create this like web of complexity that you have to understand like, and that and the installer has to under you know understand when they're editing stuff is it um, you know are they are they at risk of getting overwritten next time they update or are they safe it's just and, it, and now you know when you kind of combine that with the different packaging types it's it's it gets very complicated it's definitely more complicated than the last time I did this well the the settings are the least of an installer's worries of an admin's worries I'm trying to think of how have you ever installed an application that comes with a document of all the post-install manual stuff you're yeah, supposed yeah. to do? Well, that was, but that, you saw that a lot more before you, that you could um, include an install script. Now you can include an install script, so you can do a lot of things. And I was just about to say, I think the way I used to get, if I needed to like create some sample records or whatever, some data after they installed, I think I was doing that in that post-install script. Mm-hmm. You can. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff you used to have to have people manually do, you can do in that post-install script. I mean, I'm not saying they're still not, they're still probably things that admin might need to do. There are probably things and there are probably ISVs who've built poorly written applications or their legacy applications that have not caught up with all the new tooling. And so they don't have that. So they still come with a documentation. Some of them sell a professional service to install their own, their application into your org. And so, or the, or what I've run across is they'll do one free. 
they'll install it into production free and they'll do all the the servicing to get it up and running, but they only do it once. So you can't you can't you can you can't waste it. You mean the install script? That no, the service. So they'll say, here's our app. We offer a free install service because there's a bunch of post install oh, stuff yeah, they have to yeah. do, but you only get one. And that kind of sucks when you're trying to evaluate a product, meaning I want it installed in my sandbox first. Oh, but yeah. Then you waste it and then you have to pay for it to get done in production. Well, I think in a lot of cases, these, these ISVs don't do a good enough job at, at doing things like install scripts or just making, designing their software better so that it's not so damn manual to set up. I mean, I know there's going to be configuration and this is enterprise software, so it's unavoidable to some degree. Well, I think it's a balance of you built a product and it's grown over time and it's it's starting to kind of get frayed on the edges. And when's the tipping point where you start investing a ton of money in R&D to bring that up to spec versus still trying to sell it yeah. and make it profitable? The other thing that I forgot about are, is just these uh, the wait times for security reviews. So, w- do you have any idea what security review wait times are these days? No clue. It's been a while. So, the, so I'm seeing things like... I, I hear know, like right before Dreamforce, they... They kick it up a notch. <laughs> well, if you if you don't get it in, if you don't get it approved by Dreamforce, then you get in a situation where I know for sure, like you know, you're looking at like six weeks type of type of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Well, that's uh, what I meant by kicking up a notch. Your wait times are longer. Yeah, but that's you know it's interesting because people used to complain about Apple's wait time for the for getting things approved in their app store. And then they just I don't know what they did if it was processed or they just threw more people at it. But it's it's like a 24 hour. I mean I'm. I'm hearing stories of how um, it's it's just like it's not it's not really a problem anymore like it used to be. It's you know people are getting their apps through really fast. I think a lot of that's tooling. I think I think Apple built just all kinds of crazy. I was going to say I think they added more tooling yeah. to to better flag and organize what needs to be reviewed by by person. Yeah, but it's still kind of the it's so far it's looking like the same process that I remember, which is Salesforce does an automated code scan on your on your code and usually finds some legitimate things, mm-hmm. um, but also finds a lot of not legitimate things right. that you have to explain right. to someone who probably isn't all that well-trained or, you know, it's hard to, I don't know. It's just, uh, I don't, I don't think they have the right people doing this a lot of times. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, and then there's man, uh, God help you. If you've got like an external service that your app has to call out to, because they're going to want to know everything about that. And, and I don't know what they do. Like if they want to, like if it's a service that you run, like do they want to, do they want to scan the code for that, for your, you know, your, your express app or your Java app or whatever, you know, the external thing is, or if it's a, what if it's a third party thing you don't have, you know, you don't control yeah. it's something you, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how, but they, they do a lot of probing with that. So uh pro tip is if you don't have to have an external service, then don't have one. Cause it's going to raise, <laughs> it just definitely, it raises flags like every time, which is good. I mean, yeah. it should. Because Salesforce, because you have, to, they're looking out for me. Because and they're going to ask you, like, are you storing customer data in that external service? Are you, um, are you storing credentials? How you know if you are, then get ready because <laughs> bend over. <laughs> they're going to strap the gloves on and <laughs> and really check it out. <laughs> uh, the community says they'll do a manual pen test on a third party. Manual, huh? Interesting. I wonder why not an automated one. There's all kinds of. Well, how would you write an automated one to test every? It depends on what it is, but there are definitely, I mean, there are automated tests that will, that will, um, that can find all sorts of things. Hmm. Um, I think on a, if it's a, if it's like a web service, it may be a little harder because especially if that web service doesn't advertise what its endpoints are, um, 
because obviously it's not you're just going to guess like oh let's try slash users i mean maybe it does do stuff like that i don't know but if it doesn't know what your endpoints are then kind of doesn't know what to test um but and i think i think you also have to you have to help the uh, the salesforce security reviewers know what those endpoints are how it's be using it and they also will look at the the code of your app exchange package to see how it's using that external service and that's probably that's probably what they're doing is they're they're seeing how it's using it and they're going to manually try to hit those same endpoints and just see are you I mean they're going to look for all the common vulnerabilities mm-hmm. which is good because I think I bet they find a lot of major vulnerabilities all the time so and it's good I mean they're they're yeah I mean because they're, they're stamping it with their certification and they're giving you access to more instances assuming you're getting what is it do they still call it Aloha certified or whatever that certification was that lets you run in professional edition well, uh, so, okay, you can run a professional. If, if you get certified, yeah, you can. Yeah. Um, Aloha, I think, means that it, uh, someone will correct me here, but I think Aloha has had to be free because if you were willing to give your app away for free, then Salesforce would not make it count against people's limits or something like that. I don't know. I could have that oh, wrong. Okay. Um, I feel like they've, I feel like they've overloaded the term Aloha a couple of times too. Wasn't, wasn't one of the original like UI styles called Aloha as well? Yeah, that was the, the big theme. Was it okay? So I'd, yeah, yeah. Bet I'm not making that up. So apparently it has changed. It's now just called a certified managed package. All right. So real time update here. Aloha certified just means that it does not count against limits. It can't. It can be paid. Okay. So if it's cert, if it's a certified app, meaning it's like they approved it and it's on the app exchange, then it's those are all Aloha. Maybe. Does I think Aloha is a, a legacy term now. Maybe it is. Okay. It's been rebranded. Okay. I gotcha. <laughs> Debranded. <laughs> yeah. Tell your friend that Salesforce moved their cheese and their Aloha tattoo is uh, no longer relevant. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the nice thing about that one is it, it, Aloha has a different meaning. It's not a Salesforce term. It's a Hawaiian thing. So it, it doesn't lose its, its impact. Yeah. Unlike getting a tattoo of Astro on your shoulder. Think that was real? I don't know. God. It God. looked real. A person needs counseling. <laughs> <laughs> I also I had an experience today that was one of those, you know, the, it was just the next chapter in the book called Sometimes I Just Really Appreciate Salesforce, even though I complain about it a lot, which was, and I won't, I won't name what app this was. It's actually, um, it, it's, a, it's a standalone um, service that a lot of businesses, organizations, schools use. It's, it's, it's communication, you know, telephone related. And they're, um, in order to configure like the administration app, and I think some of the other things, are Java based, so you're in you're in the um, you you know you're in it's it's web based, right? Mm-hmm. But then as you know, when you click on a certain menu item, it literally downloads a, a web. I think it's a web start uh, file that you click on, and it you know it wants to and then web start wants to download you know um, you know eighty five meg of jars and all, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really just a mess, and then it just launches this horribly ugly Java app that is. That is the result of the, that link you clicked on. So to go into it, you know, admin or, or whatever the different things are. And it's just like, oh my God, this is such. And I don't know if it's like, because when, when was web started? When did people actually think maybe it was a good idea? Was that at least 10 years ago, probably? So wrap web start around for me. Is that the same so thing web, as like. Okay, web start is, web start was a technology that can, this was back when. Job, uh, I guess it was Sun at the time, was trying to kind of revive, make applets better. Like, okay, applets sucked. Everyone knows applets sucked. Okay. And how do we make these things better? Because the web is here and web distribution of software is a big deal. And how do we distribute, how do we 
with the, with the way the web works nowadays, how do we distribute software better? Because if if you have a Java app that you need to run, but before web start or applets, if you if you wanted to run it on your machine, then you had to like download the app ahead of time and install it. Mm-hmm. You know, run an installer or something. So web start was just something where you can click a link and it downloads a web start file, which is basically just like a metadata file, or think yeah, whatever, whatever. I don't know if metadata is the right term. Probably technically not. But anyway, it's like it tells it where to go to to actually download all the binaries and files needed for the app, and then it. It, you basically then it once it gets all that, then the then the, the the application is running not in the browser but as an as a full application on your computer. So it's basically okay. distributed over the web, but runs actually locally, a full running app. Okay, yeah, so, I get it. I mean, it was a it was an interesting idea. It seems like it would be a good idea, but I, I just think the problem is there's just so many bad Java UIs out there. Is there a good Java UI? IntelliJ is one. Um, mm. Yeah, there are there are examples of like, oh yeah, you can do it really well. But you know, IntelliJ is. But one it of took these IntelliJ things. a long time to get it right. Uh, I mean, I would at any point in IntelliJ's life almost put it up against uh, uh, lots of other things. I mean, look at Eclipse for example. Like, do you like Eclipse? No. Yeah. I, I guess what, when I say it took him a while, is is there still? It was you could tell it still leaned Windows in a lot of ways in terms of the way it worked interacted and and but today it tends to work pretty well in both like the features cross over and you have all the right keyboard shortcuts and everything it seems to be well it seems to play both and play well in both environments what about data loader do you think the data loader has a good good ui hell no <laughs> no <laughs> uh, yeah i'm trying to think of what, what it is better than it used to be though at least i guess i could say that it's gotten a little marginally better um minecraft is java right <laughs> Originally, it was. Well, you can still get Java. I, I have, I have it. But I think I've, when I think of the the apps, the Java apps that have good UIs, I don't think any of them use Java's, you know, UI frameworks like Swing or um, what was mm. the what was the new one oh, um, that had its own oh Java FX. I don't think I think you know I think IntelliJ, for example, has a hundred percent ground up its own UI framework. Wasn't that like a '90s thing? Java FX? No, F, the term FX, like everything was FX. I guess. Yeah, Java jumped on that bandwagon. Java FX was actually kind of cool. I think it still exists. I'm not sure. Oh, speaking of Java, since we're just rolling through stuff here, let me scroll down. I had something about Java. Yeah. So Amazon announced. I think this is today. Uh, a no-cost, multi-platform, production-ready distribution of um, OpenJDK. So I remember a couple of weeks ago we had the drama that, you know, Sun was, you know, if you wanted to keep using Java A just forever, you're like you're going to have to pay them at some point. Like they're going to stop doing free updates. Right. And there was just there's a lot of there's a lot of fud around the JDK, unfortunately. Um, because it's weird because nowadays JDK is actually the same thing, basically the same thing as Oracle JDK. I think or, I think Oracle still adds a couple extra bits in. They've got a couple extra things they package with with. Um, with I guess the hotspot VM, mm-hmm. but other than that, it's pretty much the exact same bits. At least at least during the support period. But now I guess um, Amazon, you know, they've they've been developing or maintaining their own, uh, I guess, distribution of OpenJDK for quite a while now, and they use it across you know thousands of machines, and they uh, they're making it available now. It's let's see if I have any information on it. Um, mm-hmm. 
Backed by Amazon, it's um, oh, it's certified, so they they run it against the the JDK TCK, the the mm-hmm. test compatibility kit. So it's always it's always passes that. Uh, they say they'll release quarterly updates that included performance performance enhancements and bug fixes. And I guess the big I was trying to figure out okay, what's the big difference between this and actually the actual Open JDK or or any of these Open JDK projects. And the difference is is like I think this is the first time where we've got someone other than Oracle um, committing. To updates like the open jdk has just worked because there's a lot of smart people that just could contribute to it individuals and, mm-hmm. it, and it has and it hasn't lagged it has stayed safe and updated and everything but there's no actual official big corporation that says we commit to doing this so like theoretically if like all those people got hit by a bus that have been contributing to the open jdk it would stop getting uh, updates right um and amazon is like committing to that but it's interesting they called it amazon Coretto, Coretto, or probably it's an Italian word, and <laughs> I thought I recognized it. Don't they roll the R? Yeah, be like corretto, yeah, and yeah. you have to, you know, do the whole Italian thing. But a cafe corretto, cafe corretto, is an Italian beverage, <laughs> <laughs> which consists of a shot of espresso with a small amount of liquor. Oh, sign me up! And what's interesting is corretto <laughs> actually, uh, I, I believe. Um, Directly translates to corrected. Oh, so they, I, they fixed it. And, huh? and I was thinking to myself, only that, and this is going to sound like, uh, I don't know what the word is, like anti-Italian, which I'm not at all. I love Italy. Um, but only the Italians would, their, their idea of a corrected coffee means adding liquor to it to correct it. <laughs> <laughs> but it could have been, I wonder if that, I wonder if that really uh, originally came from, like maybe if the coffee was kind of bad, you're like, oh, look, you better j- dump some grappa or, or you know, San Luca or whatever in there and make it make it palatable <laughs> yeah i actually can't drink warm alcohol i've never been able to drink it well it's not a real common thing is it because alcohol evaporates fast anyway well you have like hot toddies or like yeah. baileys i think baileys mm-hmm. and coffee or something like that and or like some every couple of years i'll make like a a spiced apple cider thing and i thought I you're think, gonna say eggnog i do that too. spiked yeah. eggnog in fact this year let me let me come back to eggnog. Don't let me forget. But anyway, that's, yeah, yeah, I do like the spice. And I, you know, you have like you put it in this like serving bowl that stays warm or whatever, or maybe like the little candle thing under it, whatever that is. But you want to stay warm, and you put alcohol. But the, I'm, I just think you know, you put all this rum or I can't remember what it is, rum or whiskey or something, mm-hmm. and it's just sitting there, probably evaporating because alcohol volatilizes it. Like isn't it like 120 degrees or something? I don't know. I don't know. I've I've tried it. I've tried things like that, and I just can't drink it. But we always, or not always, but. It seems like every couple of years we'll also make you know eggnog, and we make it from you know correctly, which is from scratch, raw yeah, with from love. scratch and raw raw eggs, and you and you take the raw egg whites and you make the you what's it called the not the chiff on the um, meringue uh, yeah, and you you fluff it up and make the meringue and it goes over the top and it's super super delicious because it's so fresh and everything. I hate eggnog, but there's a saying apparently that my wife and her friend learned it from Alton Brown, uh, aged eggnog. And they made this in the spring, and it's been in my fridge since, and we're going to drink it. What? In, in December. And it's made from raw eggs. I'm like, I guess we've had raw eggs so, sitting are, are, in this mason jar for, it'll be like nine or ten months, and we're going to drink that. Would you like to come over and try it, John? That's okay. <laughs> I think you would. <laughs> I, I, I hate eggnog, so I don't drink it. Oh, what's I wrong can't with stand you? It. Eggnog is amazing. Oh, it's thick and it's, gross and oh, it's unctuous and 
delicious. Call it what you want. Mm. It's gross. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> the kids, the wife, they all love it. And I just get grossed out. Ugh. I can't even watch them drink it. I, like they have to have like non-clear glasses to drink it because it just grosses me out. Well, just don't drink it then. Don't force yourself. I No, I'm not saying I want to drink it. I'm saying I don't like watching people drink it either. It's gross to me. Um, can we talk about certification well, maintenance? Yeah, we can. But I, I wanted to segue off what you were talking about with Amazon, um, about that article with the, that Amazon is actually getting rid of Oracle databases. Yes, that was yeah, That was another. Did we talk about that yet? We haven't talked about okay. that yet. Yeah, that was another announcement that... Well, and this is... And I wonder if news. this is playing into it too with them, you know, supporting this open JDK thing and just trying to really push Oracle as far away as possible. Because right now, Oracle kind of has a point. Yeah, you guys are all doing this stuff, but you're doing it on our stuff, on our, on our tech. Ex- except that they're not. Um, so let's see. There's a guy named, I think he's like an Amazon engineer. I think he's kind of well-known, James Hilton. And he released, and it, so in addition, okay, so let's back up for a second. The announcement today, was it today? Which or, announcement? Very recently, so that Amazon. Their new headquarters or? No, no, I'm sorry. The database or? Back up. So they had this blog post that got widely circulated. And I don't know if there's anything other than that that was kind of in the news today. But it was basically um, a, yes. big, a big post about how to, how to migrate from Oracle to Postgres. And, you know, Amazon's just trying to help the world migrate from Oracle to either Postgres or what's Amazon's um, database called? Uh, Aurora. Is that what it is? No, it's... um, It's not? Oh, yes, it is Aurora. Yeah, it's Aurora. Aurora. I can't I've say never that used word. it. Is it... Um, that, that's, their own, that's their own distribution of MySQL, right? I think it's MySQL. I still don't see why people use MySQL when Postgres exists, but whatever. That's a topic for a different day. <laughs> um. But they, yeah, so they, they you know, released this blog post and they're just, they're, they're continue to pound the drum on and getting people to, to migrate from Oracle to anything else, as long as it runs on Amazon. But this guy, uh, it was an interesting post. I'll, I'll put it in the, in the show notes from James Hamilton, but he says, it's, uh, let's see, he said, you know, Larry Ellison is frequently referencing Amazon and saying they run their entire business on Oracle. He even goes on to say that Amazon tried to move databases and failed. Uh, these frequent claims from Oracle from the Oracle leader are interesting for two reasons. Number one, the statement is incorrect. <laughs> and two, Amazon doesn't allow Oracle to use the Amazon brand in marketing, and yet Larry just does it anyway. Why not? Yeah, what do you do? Sue him. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't think they run their entire in fact, um, where's the information? So this was from uh, Andy Andy Jassy, who's the AWS CEO, I think. He said, and I'm not sure if this is a tweet. I can't tell. It's just a poll quote. But it says, in the latest episode of Uh, uh Larry, keep talking, Larry, or whatever. It's so supposed to be funny. Anyway, it says, Amazon's consumer, this is Andy saying this, Amazon's consumer business turned off its Oracle data warehouse November 1st and moved to Redshift. By the end of 2018, they'll have 88% of their Oracle databases and 97% of critical system databases moved to Aurora and DynamoDB. Dynamo, is that a... Document or memory database? Um, it's it's another one of these Amazon things. Um, I've never really used it, but I, I think it is. It's like a high scale kind of in memory type of thing. I'm not sure if it's like a key value. Let's see. That's a database. Uh-huh. Is that their is that their answer to what's what's Google's like the spanner? What's their um, you know that, that have started to challenge the cap theorem a little bit, although they're really not. You get into that database theory and, and 
Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a re- super high scale database, I guess. I don't, you know, I just don't do super high scale stuff. I don't either. I mean, even the, even the, the apps I've built that are, they're big, big apps with like lots of functionality. They're never like thousands of user apps. Or, you know, I recently I've, I've built like a, I've built like portals that are really important portals, like business portals mm-hmm. that have all this functionality, all this custom business functionality stuff. And they're, it's for like, I don't know, five, like maybe a thousand users. Yeah. And so, you know, it's never high skill. I, I mean, yeah, I've got, you know, I do load balancers and put a couple app servers behind it, but I, it's like the, I never actually hit a volume level that it needs both of those app servers. It's basically just so that I can do, I can do safe deployments and, just, you know, you, and if one goes, if one gets, um, corrupted uh, no, or it gets, what's, what's the, if one gets, um, Hijacked. chaos monkeyed or, or just, you know, killed by Amazon, which they do that sometimes. Uh, I've, I've always got a second one. Yeah. Redshift is, uh, someone's mentioning Redshift. Redshift is, I believe like it's more data warehouse. Like, I, I don't know. I don't do big data either. It's other thing. So anyway, what was, uh, is that all the Amazon stuff? Yeah. You circled back to eggnog already. Well, and, and I was uh, also, when I was reading this about Amazon and, and the, how they're been by the end of this year, they'll have, I mean, they'll be have they'll have eighty eight percent of their databases off of Oracle, and move to Aurora and Dynamo. I wonder. Uh, I wonder. If, you know, Salesforce kind of famously a few years ago made a big big announcements about how they're moving off Oracle. They're going to move to Postgres, and they you know they posted in the in the Postgres uh, users group about you know they're going to them hey we're hiring fifty Postgres engineers so please come apply and all this stuff and I don't, I don't you know. That, that's a hard task, especially, mm-hmm. I mean, Salesforce is really wrapped around that Oracle axle um, in a lot of ways, performance, security, and it's, and it's, it's the proprietary bits of, an, of a relational database. I mean, the easy parts are, you know, the, the parts of this, the, the language that are standardized and stuff like that, but it's, it's, all the, it's all the areas where these database vendors can add value, secure, you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of crazy extra security, multi-site stuff, failover stuff, log shipping, and and just high, you know, crazy performance stuff that's not has nothing to do with any kind of SQL standard at all. Right. That you get you get locked into. Vendor lock-in's a bitch, huh? Salesforce. <laughs> I know. I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's going through. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Anyway, all right, John. Well, what else is uh, on your mind for this week? Well, I interrupted you. You were going to talk about. Um, well, we'll finish eggnog. I wasn't going to talk about politics. No, 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 not politics. You were talking about something else um i did have uh you know that benioff made the news again for like the third times was this tesla quote? no i'm talking about facebook as the new cigarettes i figured i better go ahead and facebook is the new cigarettes <laughs> oh. oh you forgot one more amazon that's not even, that's not even they grammatically new, correct they picked a new location for their headquarters <laughs> that's right that was today yeah um yeah, virginia it was a couple days ago wasn't it well, no it was today no i heard about it well then it got oh, yeah, yeah i i yeah, Vir- Virginia, I didn't hear about it until today. Crystal City, which Crystal City is kind of uh, this like what the hell is that? It's it's um someone described it as like a what was it? Um, oh crap, I forget now. Like a uh, oh yeah, it was certifications. Thank you. Like a 1960s, like some kind of you know former Soviet country. What? Yeah. What are you talking about? This Crystal City is where. 
it's it's it reminds you of like oh, a 1960s okay. post or you know post Soviet country. Sorry, I got distracted. Our, the topic that I was thinking was certifications. That's what you were trying. You were jumping onto certification. Yeah. Well, I thought so. You you used to have certifications, and you're you, we were talking earlier how and we've talked about this how because I I want to actually you know I don't know just go out and get a couple more certifications because I've got the like the lowest what I don't even know what it's called. It used to be developer. Mm-hmm. Now it's something else. But I I ran into a a, a confusion. That, well, first of all, this whole the linking it, it's this. This migration, because you can tell they're migrating off of WebAssessor, right? That's eventually going to be gone. Mm. And it's just, it's awkward right now, and it's confusing. And like the way, <laughs> the way that you have to, if, if, you don't, if you don't have the original, I send you an email with like a code. And if you don't do that one, then it's like, it's, it's just so weird. But anyways, I, I, guess I, I guess I got them linked. And there's, I don't know, it's not even really, I'm not even sure how to tell if it's correctly linked or not. But also I was trying to figure out Okay. As soon as I linked them, I said, "Hey, uh, why don't you look at our certifi- our certification maintenance track?" And so I go to the certification maintenance track or trail or whatever it is, trailhead. I don't know. And it lists all of the all of the maintenance guides or tra- trails. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Well, I've just linked my thing. It knows what certifications I have. Why is it showing? Why isn't it just showing me the ones that apply to me?" So I had to like find the one and make sure I was going through the right trail. And so I found it. Mm-hmm. And I did that trail, and I took the exam at the end, the little, you know, the ones at the, 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 the bottom. And I, you know, I passed and got 100% or whatever. I'm like, oh, great, I'm done. And then I, I managed to find, I, through the verify certifications, it was still showing that I'm not, I, I'm behind. Hmm. I'm not. So I went back to the email and found that, oh, for spring 18, you still have to do it through Web Assessor. But starting with summer 18, you can do them through Trailhead. And I thought, well, why did it let me do it through Trailhead? I, I don't think Trailhead's going to stop you from doing it. Well, but no, but it, but it lets you, but it's the same. Yeah, well, why, why would you do it through Trailhead? Why would I take that exam through Trailhead if it doesn't count at all? If I still have to then go to Web Assessor and take the exam? To get the experience. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's just, it's, it's still, this, it's at this awkward, I feel yeah. like Trailhead's at this awkward you know, teenager, preteen stage right now. Yeah, the, the whole process is still, I don't know, I guess I, I, we've been doing this for so long and we've seen how the certification process has kind of evolved for the last lack of a better term. And, and just how you do one thing and the next time it's, oh, we're changing how it's done, so go do this. And we're changing stop. how it's done, so go do this. Yeah, that's never going to stop. It's just, it's just such a, it's, it's almost disconcerting to, to want to keep it up because you feel like they're just going to change it again and then, then I, I'm responsible for, for staying all current. Um, yeah. and I don't, I'm not so sure I'm not so sure I'm a fan of the maintenance exams either I kind of like the way MuleSoft has their setup where you take it you're certified for two years and then you have to retake it again I just feel like that's a I think I think you'll get more better professionals out of it by doing that instead of this kind of ongoing maintenance where you just kind of take little tidbits here someone posts the questions online you take five minutes out of your day and you you answer a bunch of multiple choice and you just consider yourself certified. It just, and, and there are people that are just like, they're approaching the certification process. Like it's a game. They're just like, Oh, whatever I can take, whatever I can get. Let me get all the certs. It's just, I don't know. I just, I don't know how Salesforce could prevent. I mean, I, I've come, I complain about the certification culture because it, and you've, I think a lot of us have seen this firsthand. It, it really, it takes companies who already weren't good at hiring and really reinforces bad hiring practices. Yeah. 
But Salesforce has made these these certifications a currency, especially with partners. They they basically, I mean they <laughs> they tell you how many certifications you have to have, and of course make you pay to get them. And and of course, so, the, so that creates that creates a demand for certifications mm-hmm. because you know these partners want to want to hire people. With, they have to have certifications. They want to hire people with certifications, and they're willing to pay you know pretty good money to do it. And so it creates this creates this certification feedback loop that creates all this demand. And, and then you get people that just kind of game it and, yeah, you know, they know how to take tests. A lot of the answers are all online and everything. And, and, you know, you can just, you can, if you've got the time, you can just go and rack up literally like dozens of certifications, I think. Right. Probably. So don't some people have like 20 or more. Yeah. And then, and then the problem with that is it kind of cheapens or it makes, it kind of makes the certification program look bad. Well, I, 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 from my perspective, is I feel like no one's really taking it seriously. I think, I think it could be a valuable educational tool and a way to kind of reinforce that you have people who are up to date on the technology. But that's not what's happening. It doesn't feel like that's what's happening. I don't feel like when I get told I need to have a certain number of certifications, it doesn't come with, here's the things we want to be strong with as a company. Here's the certifications that we think apply towards that goal. It's none of that. It's just go and pick some certs and get a bunch of them so we can check the box. And, and here's, and this is again the, the real, unfortunate part to me is that you might have a, a person who's got, let's say they've got the advanced developer certification. Mm-hmm. They got it a couple of years ago and they've been maintaining it and they've built just all this amazing stuff and they're a great engineer and they communicate well and all this stuff. And then you've got someone else who just did the serial certifications thing. It's never built anything that great. Doesn't know how to, you know, doesn't know the first thing about business or mm-hmm. listening to or you know user empathy or anything you know any number of things that you need to have to be a you know probably a, a good developer but according to most employers that person with more certifications is going to look better yeah. and certainly if you're a partner it's like oh man that gets us like 15 of but, our certification credits or but that whatever. comes back to your your hiring process it's i mean lazy. it's just like with anything it, i don't even know if it's lazy because some people it's not lazy they just literally don't know how to hire yeah well and we've talked about that before too. Yeah, we've seen this of these companies that just—I mean, most of them—it's—it's it's a joke. I mean, go on an interview. It's a ninety—I would say at least ninety percent of the time. It's your, the interview is going to be an absolute joke. They don't know how to interview. They don't know what to ask you. They don't know. They don't know how to figure out how good of a. Of course, a lot of these companies don't know what a, don't know a good developer from a bad developer anyway. That's, and, and maybe. Uh, for them, the certification actually helps. That that's like the best thing they have because they don't know how to interview. So the best thing they've got is, well, how many certifications do you have? Yeah, I don't know. I <clears throat> yeah, I don't know what to say. But anyway, so I mean, part of the reason why I'm interested in getting more certifications is um, I, there's actually some things I think I, I want to learn. And going down that certification path, kind of for you know, you have to learn mm-hmm. these things. But also, I've, I've kind of. Done. A, I haven't tried to keep it secret, but the cat's kind of out of the bag now that I've I've got a new job where I'm working at a partner, right? And so I just need to have I need to have some certifications because I have to help contribute to that requirement. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we're hiring. So if you know any good Salesforce consultants, please get in contact with me. I noticed you never asked me. <laughs> <laughs> Can't afford me. Well. You're a, I, we're not looking, we're not, it's not a developer thing where we're looking for like, you know, um, what are they called? Solution architects mm-hmm. in the Salesforce? Yeah, yeah. So more of the solution architect, people can, who can run engagements, who have got yeah. like, you know, a lot of business experience too. And they, they got, you know, political experience and you can just deal with clients because clients can be difficult and just, 
but also are really good Salesforce solution architects. Yeah, and Jeremy's like, John checks none of those boxes. <laughs> you could if you wanted to, but you would not be happy doing that is the problem. No, no, that's not, that's not my gig. Uh, but you know, speaking of that, I, how do you feel? It seems like with the certifications and everything, it's such a point and click world with the Salesforce. With the Salesforce. God, I cannot talk. Words aren't coming out the way they're supposed to. That's okay. I sound smarter in my head than I do when they come out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like when it comes to implementations or implementation focused partners, that the development side is more of a, we just, a necessary evil. Like they really want to stick with point and click tools, which is obvious. I mean, obviously you want to stay as native as possible because as they add new features, you want to do that. But I feel like because of that, the value of a developer or, or just the access to cheap and development labor kind of lessens the importance of having someone technical, the importance of having a good, strong, either architect or developer. Hmm. And you've made that argument before, and I'm not sure I buy it. I mean, yes, there are more things that you can do now without having to code, but there's, I guess there's two or more sides of that coin. The other, one of the other ones is, that's true, but there's also more and more ways that you can build systems that require, you know, if not coding, and by the way, coding possibly in multiple languages, but also just understanding like, you know, how web services are built and all the HTTP stack. And because, you know, you'd be surprised how many developers don't know the first thing about the HTTP stack. I mean, how caching works, how just how the, you know, resources, HTTP resources are supposed to be designed. Even the basic verbs, how you use the verb, I mean, not to mention, I mean, just go look at the HTTP spec and, and half of the RFCs that are add-ons to HTTP. I mean, it's a huge world, and mm-hmm. most developers don't even know ten percent of it. Yet they're building apps. Their 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 whole profession is building apps on top of this thing that they don't know anything about. And eventually, that stuff gets you in trouble. So anyway, I guess my point is there's there's a lot of ways you can integrate apps and sales in, with it with the Salesforce world and build things on top of Salesforce. More and more ways to build things on Salesforce, and so. Yeah, there's you can do more without code, but there's so much that more that you can do with code. Also, that it it's like, it seems like it's balanced by that. I, I guess I, I if I'm put in the position where I'm I'm the architect and I'm designing a solution, I will look at everything. I'll I'll take the gamut from native features to flow to process builder to code. Um, but what I'm finding when it comes to say a solution architect, because they usually get to it before I do, um, They've already, they've already been sold on point and click and they're going to shoehorn a, f- a flow in there as hard as they can. They're going to shoehorn a process builder as hard as they can without considering other avenues. So it's, I feel like this tug of war between solution architecture and technical architecture, like there's a line drawn that says, don't, don't touch this because yeah. I can do it point and click. There's this external integration. Why don't you go handle that? Leave me, leave me alone. Okay, so thank you for that because that's the entree to the third side of this coin, which I was going to mention. <laughs> Which is just because you can do it with point and clicks doesn't necessarily mean you should. Just like just because you can do it in code doesn't mean you should. But what and, I guess what I'm saying is I that always hang on. Let me say I want to get this. I always push back on this idea that oh, always prefer clicks over code. Well, no, not always. Sometimes you're going to get yourself into trouble if you avoid if you're avoiding code at all costs. I mean, you're really going to and depending on what you're doing, you you could very well you know really compromise your solution or get yourself into trouble if you've ruled out code. Yeah. Because the ways, the options that leaves you with sometimes are not the right options, are not good options. So a good solution architect actually understands a lot of this, understands a lot of the, when it's, when it's okay to use, you know, the, the various, what are they called? What do they call these? Declarative. <sighs> so that's just such a, it's just a bad name. It doesn't even, doesn't even say the right things. But 
you know, the various non-code solutions, like when they're appropriate, when they're not, when you, when you're, you know, when to ask, when to ask a more technical person, Hey, should we be doing this in process builder or is it okay to like do this? Or, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of volume of data. Should we, should we consider something else? Like, what do you think? You know, like just knowing when to ask is I think key for yeah, a, I good, think that's a good important. solution architect. I think, I think in, in most of the team environments that I'm in, the solution architect will ask when it comes to things like that. I, I just feel like more and more when I, when I see the stuff that comes out of Salesforce, the, the way they want you to do things or the way they tell you to do things, it just seems more focused on the declarative side, less around the code. And it just... Well, yeah, because they're selling that hard. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a, it, that it, is a positioning and a marketing thing. It becomes it's, a, not, it, it's not a necessarily a reality. Yeah, it's part of the ongoing educational process with the client to say, this is custom code. I, I, I think what happens, or at least my perception of what happens with a client is we go in, we, we talk about solutions we want to implement. We, we take the requirements and we say, here's our recommendation. Um, I feel like if we're saying code, I, I often feel like they feel like they got a bait and switch. I often feel like they feel like, oh, we got this platform that said you can do it all with declarative. And now you're telling me you need to custom build that and it's going to take X amount of dollars and we have to implement this process and this cycle. And uh, yeah, I don't mind. Do all those, these I don't mind those conversations. That's part, part of, I think, what I've always considered to be my job, which is just helping. Because sure, I mean, Salesforce, I mean, they're one of, they're an insane marketing machine and messaging, right? And then we, we talk about that, you know, the, the, the Dreamforce effect on us. It's, it's been always been part of my job to try to, to help people understand, to educate people on, well, sure, yeah, there's all this point and click stuff you can do. And, and a lot of it's great. And, you know, a par- part of the solution that we're providing is, includes a lot of point and click stuff. But here's why we think this thing needs to be code or these or whatever, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and that's my job. And if they don't, if that's not valuable to them, if they don't want that, then I've, I need to move on. That's the wrong project for me. If, especially if they're gonna, and and I'm I'm certainly wis, uh, willing to listen to to um, other ideas. Maybe I'm wrong about why something needs to be code. Totally, wis, totally willing to have that conversation. But if you're just shutting me down because, you know, you heard Mark Benioff get on stage and talk about how you can do almost everything with point and click nowadays, then and you won't listen to me, then okay, I'm, that's not the right project for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm certainly not in disagreement with that, and I'm I'm not trying to paint the picture that I'm in this world where that is pushed down on me or that I feel like I can't have those conversations, but it is an ongoing conversation that does need to happen. It is something that comes up quite often. And I, I do feel a little bit insecure about some of the conversations I get into because I feel like, yeah, Salesforce did this really nice, fancy demo for you, but even some of the stuff in their demo they showed you does not exist. It was custom built for that oh, demo. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and so I just feel like I'm constantly in this battle of just trying to reset expectations and get past the marketing. And it's oh, and they'll do things like um, they, they. I don't know if they still do this, but for a while I was in their kind of conference rotation. They would demo this um, real estate app, real estate mobile app, and I think they built it with like the mobile SDK. Mm-hmm. And when they show how they built it, they're showing you just a bunch of drag and drop. But what they don't, what they don't show you is you can download the, I think, I think the code's available. This is, I think, and it was the Christian Conrads or whatever his name is that I think they built it. And he's, he's great at, you know, he builds really nice demo apps and stuff. But I mean, there's all this apex code behind the scenes that they don't, they don't talk about in the demo. Mm-hmm. And there's all this, you know, I think it's, you know, calling you know, various web services and things to get, you know, real estate information or whatever. And it's like, it's, it's all, you know, you still got to do this stuff. You still, it's still technology. I mean, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is still to this day, right? Yeah. That 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 is always going to apply. Yeah. Oh, you need to read the Slack. <laughs> it's a nice little chart for you. Yeah, I've I've seen this chart. Um, it's kind of unfortunately part of what I have to deal with nowadays. It's basically, the a chart of 
Well, it shows you it shows you as a partner how many you have to earn all these points as a partner. You can earn them by having certification. You you have to have certification. But you earn them by having certifications, by getting like C, the customer satisfaction points, and probably sponsoring Dreamforce. I don't know. There's all these different ways, and you have to get points. Um, it's just a game. It's a big game. What 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 does it list? What you can do to lose points? <laughs> like you, like like you know when you get you get a, a a ticket on your driver's license and some some places have point systems on the driver's license we don't but there's some some places that have point systems and like if you get a a speeding ticket or something you like lose points. Well, here's one. It says you lose fifty points for ha- for having a jackass podcaster on staff. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> So this is the last show of the Good Day Sir podcast because Jeremy's losing exactly, too many yeah. points. Have to wrap it up. Hey, it's been a good run, but uh, yeah, I, I, I've got a. I, I can't. I, what's a? It's. I guess it's not a conflict of interest, right? No. But anyway, I have. What else do I? Have? You got anything else, John? I really want to talk about that ninety-five percent code coverage. I thought that was a funny story. It's just such an. What what story was this? It's the the Reddit story that got posted on the. With the image of the of the incrementing uh, i variable. Well, I I you know I've seen this. I've, of course, I've seen screenshots we, seen it, of, yeah. the, of the whole i plus plus you know million you know five thousand lines of it or whatever. Um, and and I, I wondered when I read that, it almost seemed like someone just took a screenshot of. I swear I've, I've seen that exact screenshot before and made up some story around it. Um, some wasn't there a story about how they also um, they got sued or something? There's a lawsuit involved because. But I don't know. It's like I mean, I've seen this stuff a million times. I see. Well, you have. And I, I'm most, just looking a, at the a comments. Huge part of my job is dealing with other people's really crappy code, and that's. I won't say that's not the least of it because that's actually pretty yeah. bad. But I mean, I deal with bad code all the time. Yeah, I mean, more so is just the the comment section of everyone just kind of chiming in on how they've seen this kind of stuff <laughs> and they've they've dealt with this kind of stuff and they had to work around this kind of stuff and. Slack is cracking me. You just. You just. <laughs> I By just, the way, uh, we we since we're broadcasting, did we even talk about that on the show? I don't. I think we should mention that. We, what? We're this is uh, we're we're broadcasting these live. At least we've done it two weeks in a row now. Right. Are we um, going to continue? I don't know. But while we are, you can you can start. And and we it's always we usually start Wednesday around three p.m. Central. So if you want to um, listen, the best the best way to do it is just get into Slack, which you have to be in Slack. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a live channel now. You call it live, right? Yeah, it's live. Hashtag live, John. Hashtag, Hashtag live. live. God. <laughs> all right, the next evolution is going to be video so we can see all the weird gestures you make. But if you're not in our Slack, on our Slack team, it's really easy to join. Just go to our website, which is gooddayserpodcast.com and click on community and just put your uh, email address in and John will, John will add you when he gets time, which is, he's just pretty good about that. He, you add people much quicker than you ever respond to my texts or phone calls, so. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. That's not true. Oh, it is. You're the worst. You ignore me. Do not. Yeah, you do. I get back to you as soon as I can. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, okay. Well, so what else about that story that, that you thought was interesting? More so just, just the amount of people that have dealt with it. And it, I, I've taken those stories and I've seen those stories, but it's always kind of felt like this anecdotal thing. It still technically feels like an anecdote, but it's, it's this idea that so many people are dealing with because we talk about the five million dollar, five million dollar, five million developer number, and how there's all these developers, and it just seems like there's a big disparity between quality developers and and large. Some of these were saying that they weren't saying names, but the the code was from 
very large Salesforce partners, you know, partners with that oh, have sure. a lot of investment with a oh. lot of people. Oh, and, this is not limited to small. This is I've seen the biggest com- companies, the the headline ones, the platinum sponsors at Dreamforce create absolute garbage. Yeah. Absolute garbage. It happens all the time. It's it's there's no limit to it. But, you know, back to the point and click thing. I mean, what's the ratio of Salesforce's messages uh, message of, oh, you know, you can just point and click everything to to um talking about quality engineering. There isn't. It's it's an infinite it's an infinite uh, it's a divide by zero error. It it's is one to zero, and, I, I, and that's I probably guess... not true actually because there are talks at Dreamforce and probably especially more so at, at Trailhead where they you know you're gonna you're gonna hear people give talks and talk about you know right ways to do things wrong ways to do things and whatever. yes yes but in the message but you know from who from us uh, yeah from, from people us. in the community and, and also you know guys like um um. Wade and some of these other guys that, that work at Salesforce. I don't know. I mean, when we talk about Salesforce messaging, I think about marketing and how they talk about how you can do all these point and click tools, and because it's declarative, it's safer and this and that, and it's scalable. And you don't get that from from a messaging of code quality or or how the five million developers have this high high level of threshold of quality right. and metrics they have right. to deal with. It's just seventy five percent code coverage, some number they pulled out. So when I talk when I talk to executives at these Salesforce partners and and talk to them about the issues with not having good quality engineering um, as a part of your practice, I mean I just get deer in the headlights. They look at me like I'm I mean a lot of them look at me like I'm kind of like I'm crazy or they just I just get blown off or whatever. It's like okay, I mean they're out doing big projects for clients all over the world and they don't know the they just don't care about and it, and if they're lucky they've hired some people who who, who do care you know I, at I the think, bottom of the ranks they're going to have people who who care and who do a good job and and sometimes yeah. that's just the luck of the draw and some of them luck out and kind of accidentally hire well and the other ones you know they don't get so lucky and they they get have big problems on their hands yeah i i guess i i it's just not part of the culture. It's just yeah, not part of the not. Salesforce culture. It's not. Yeah, I guess. I guess that's what bothers me is that it's not part of the culture. That it's for whatever for whatever degree it is, it's community driven or it's just people who just really care and take pride in what they do. But there's a we're competing against all these developers who are probably cheaper than us, and we're having to justify why we charge what we charge for the amount of quality that we get. Um, yeah. Hey, I won't get you sued. <laughs> But, uh, but if they don't, know. but if they don't, if they can't even imagine. It's not to say that the code I write is perfect or quality or doesn't have issues. Or if I looked at code I wrote a year ago, I wouldn't be embarrassed by it. I, I certainly would be. I would hope anybody would be. It's just we're talking about people who are almost frauding the system. We're talking about people who are intentionally just bypassing certain checkpoints that are there to at least provide some level of quality into the system. It, it almost seems like fraud. Although I've, I have. Um, worked with people who did the whole I++ thing. Uh, it was brought into a project where I'm finding that. And when I talked to the developer who was doing this, they truly did not understand what was wrong with that. It seemed like a fine technical solution to achieve you know, 75% code coverage. Again, it's a, I think it's a cultural problem. And, and, and again, it gets... Well, when you don't understand right, something. When I think of these developers who... Maybe they've been a developer for ten years now, but they became a developer. They be- as a Salesforce developer. That's that was their. That's how they became a developer is in the Salesforce world, and they never really went to work on a Java or a .NET team or something with 
and, and worked with really good, you know, like more senior engineers that, because that, that's one of the best ways to learn some of this stuff. A lot mm-hmm. of it is kind of, a, it's, it's almost an apprentice model. I mean, there's, I know universities have gotten better with software engineering degrees versus like computer science. It's gotten better, but still, I mean, I, th- I think it's got to be a majority of like good engineers that I've talked to. I mean, they actually learn from other good engineers. They work, they worked on teams with them and that they just, it gets passed down kind of like, that's how you learn how software is built. Yeah. And these guys, they're just, and I say guys in a generic way, of course, they, they become developers in the Salesforce space, which does not have a quality engineering culture. And I mean, I don't mean internally at Salesforce. They definitely have a quality culture there. I mean, Oh yeah, I would say so. Right. Yeah. yeah that's a whole different thing. I'm talking the, the outside messaging of the, all the partners and customers. It's just not emphasized. And so people, it's not in people's brains. They don't think about it in this space. Yeah. Uh, and Slack, some people are talking about code coverage for lightning components. Oh, it's not really a requirement now. The, the Fashista side of me says, well, because it's not running on Salesforce's computers. <laughs> That's true. Code coverage is there to test your code and make sure it's not going to screw yeah. up their computers. Right. And, but right. now this is running on clients' computers, so yeah. why, who cares? But that's yeah. just me being... I mean, I guess you have to look at why the Salesforce have that 75% code coverage for Apex. It's, it's probably the number one reason. There's nothing wrong with this at all. Is to protect Salesforce's own infrastructure. Sure. That's also why, they, you know, why there's the limits that there are. Right. But I mean, the, 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 there's limits in, in Lightning as well. It's just. I don't understand that, you know, they, they do the, one of the things that they say that the reason why they have these code coverage requirements is because when they test new releases, they do this. Is it the hammer or whatever? What does the thing I think where it's the hammer. It tests. The regression it testing. Tests every, all clients' code, everyone's code, every org's code against the new release of Salesforce, the yet mm-hmm. to be released version. And so they can see what they've broken. I'm like, that's weird to me because. I don't know, gosh, at least 50% of the time when I get into some client's production org, I can just go to run all tests and somehow another half of them are failing. And it's not because there's a new risk to Salesforce. It's just because they're bad tests. Yeah. And so how do, how do they, how does that, how does that, how do they get a decent signal to noise ratio on the tests that are failing to know whether they've broken stuff or not? I mean, maybe they have ways, but. It's gotten worse due to a, a, a welcomed feature, which is you can release something and tell it which test to run when you release it. Uh, through the chain set. I don't know if you can do that with a, with an Apex deployment, um, with the Ant tool deployment, but at least with a chain set, you can tell it which tests to run when you run, when you run a chain set. And it's just made things, I think, worse because prior to that, you could say, I can't deploy anything until we fix this, until we figure out why this is, why this... And it's usually data. It's usually some data thing that caused it or because usually you can't get code without them all passing. But I'm in environments right now where if I run all tests... It, there's usually something failing oh, yeah. or some validation rule that has to get turned off because there's a bunch of old legacy code that didn't take into account when it created its mocked uh, lib- or objects or whatever. And um, it's never going to be addressed because now the, the, the easiest and cost-effective way is to just run a very specific test for the new code you're putting in and move on. Yep. <clears throat> Although I've never done that. I don't use a change set to do that because yeah. I don't I would imagine that the metadata API and the tooling API do support that like specifying which tests to run I think it was brought in mainly because there there are orgs out there that are screwed like they're, they're just you can't get the coding out you can't change it so the only way to really keep modifying it is to be able to just run very specific yeah. tests I've seen um, I'll just keep I'll just keep uh, picking on partners but I've seen large a large partners own Salesforce org that they couldn't for 
I mean, I don't know how long, months, certainly at least months. It might have even been more than 12 months. Could not get anything in or out of their org. Yeah. And, you know, they had two or three people working full time for months trying to fix this. But they'd gotten their org so twisted up that they could not. And it's such bad, a lot of bad tests. I mean, just improperly designed tests is, the, is yeah. usually the problem. Or, I mean, it's, again, like you said, I mean, just creating a, a, a validation rule or something can break. You can create one validation rule on, on like a central object, like a count or something mm-hmm. that breaks thousands of tests. Yeah. That's all it takes. Yeah. Of course, if you figure out what's causing it, it's one fix to fix thousands of tests, right? To those thousands of tests. You just don't make that required anymore. <laughs> and, then, and, and then you can, if you want to, you can update your code to, you know, your, your test f- factory or whatever, the, your, your uh, test fixture factory code to, to provide a value for that required field. Do you just have one class that does that? Or do you do that? Do so you have, have a, a factory for your... Uh, yeah, I usually have some kind of factory so that they're a little dangerous because yeah. you're, you're defaulting a lot of stuff and yeah. sometimes you forget what you're defaulting. Or, But I do, yeah, yeah. Because, mainly because I like my test classes to read as cleanly as possible and have as little cruft in them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've got a, kind of this pattern that I've kind I've of seen yours and it's, I feel it, like it's over-engineered at times because you, you pass in all these like because you're trying to avoid defaulting things with yours, with your kind of like mocking no, framework. I do, I do default, um, but you can you can pass in like if you can pass in an S object that's set. And if you need something other than the default values, you can pass in an an, an, S, an S object or like a, whatever you're creating, and it will merge the values you specified on that with the defaults. That's yeah. S. But what what most importantly, the thing I like about what I do is that I have a really clean. Like almost like a fluent API to mm-hmm. create all this test data in my in my setup method, and it's and I end up with minimal like a minimal amount of test setup code because so much of it is abstracted away and reused. There's actually much less. I end up with much less setup code overall because I do I, it is abstracted. And what do you what do you do for test scenarios? Let's say you build some customization on top of an account and it makes all these callouts and everything, and that's that's going to affect any other code that was ever written on the account. How do you solve for that? Do you do you just kind of that does a call out? Yeah. What can't you? Isn't there a thing nowadays where you can actually? They added something a couple of versions ago where you can say don't basically don't do the callouts or you can no you can mock them you, you can, can mock them yeah yeah but something has to call that mocking routine or something has to say hey use this right use this uh, fake use this fake yeah when when if someone calls this I don't know I think I just deal with it on a test by test basis yeah um, but. In general, I, I don't think I would put something like a trigger on something that did a call. Well, you can't actually. You can't do calls and triggers. So that's not a problem. No, but they can, they can call it an a, a synchronous process or a batch process that does. I mean, it's... Right. Yeah. You could have a trigger that, that, have trigger that, that fires yeah. like a future or something. And yeah, within your, within your start, start, stop test, it'll run right. it. But for the, those types of things, either in the either in the the class that's doing the calling out, I'll I'll put like a switch in it that just essentially disables it or mm-hmm. something like that. Or sometimes I'll even have a. I mean, I've done like service. I, I've I've tried so many things. I've never really landed on anything that I love. I haven't either because it's just the limitations of the platform. But I'll sometimes I'll have a because <laughs> excuse me, a service locator type of class that's almost like a way of dependency injection mm-hmm. or a kind of a way to do inversion of what's it, inversion of control, I guess. 
where things will look up to like a, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a singleton. I know Boo, singletons, but I mean, singletons <laughs> are kind of useful, especially when like, you're limited on the, on the options you have. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's a place where they all, so you set the values in the singleton or you, you and if your singleton represents like a, a factory, well, you can have that factory return a, a family of like, you know, production implementations of things, or you can, it can return like families of test instances of things, which don't actually do call outs and give you fake data and whatever. Um, and you just set that, you just, you, in, in your test setup, you just configure that, um, your, um, your service locator or your, your, uh, factory or whatever. And then all the things that use it are getting your configured version of it. So you kind of just have to, in your test yeah. setup, you just, you're setting one thing. And sometimes it's easy as like, am I in test mode or not? Right. And then everything else derives from that. So. I don't know. That's again, I don't think there's, I haven't seen great ways. There's nothing I love that I've seen. I've yeah, looked at all either. kinds of trigger frameworks and the FF lib and, and there's, there's good stuff in all of these things. I mean, and I've, the, the code that I use is, is mainly just, no, I'm, I'm just picking and choosing from all these different things and kind of cobbling together my own Frankenstein of, of what I think <laughs> I need. Right. Um, and, and, it works. I mean, it, it ends, I end up with about, I, I think, what's reasonably clean, clean code for the limitations that I'm dealing with. Yeah. I think it's easier to have a, a much larger opinion on how to handle those things when you're building, say, behind a namespace or something than it is for building kind of one-off things and seeing a code base evolve and then I'll go, oh, crap, I've got to retrofit my, my call-out testing to all these other test classes now, which is, and what, is, what, is what I end up having to do in those scenarios. One thing that I kind of struggle with, especially when I'm doing like a, just a quick hit on like a, 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 a client's org that I'm probably not going to be working with or whatever, or if they've got a lot of existing stuff is, mm-hmm. you know, do you, do you like use some kind of like, tr- uh, like a trigger framework of some sort? Because they can be really useful when like you get in situations where you've got tests that need to set up this massive like family of, of objects, like insert a bunch of different records such that you're, you actually hit limits simply trying to set up your test fixture. Um, you, need a back, you need a backdoor way to just insert raw data into the system without running any triggers. Yeah. And if you haven't built that in from the beginning, then it's tough to go back and retrofit essentially a trigger framework into all those things. Yeah. So I always struggle with, oh, this is just such a quick little thing. Do I actually go to that length? Because eventually someone's going to come in here and add and build onto this org. Maybe me, maybe someone else. But then I think, you know what? But it's probably going to be someone else, and they're not going to keep up with what I've done. They're going to be like, "Oh, why do you do this? I'm taking that out," because they don't understand, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, in the interest of time, I want to get to something because I want you, I want to see if you can explain something to me because I, I don't understand how this is valuable, but maybe I'm just missing it. I'm not smart enough. Uh, and that is this article that talks about a patent that Salesforce won on email spam tracking or something tackling email spam yeah i saw that it was with blockchain it was, but it doesn't make sense to right. me well it's also not new i mean there's there are apparently several other existing spam tools that that use blockchain i don't know how or why well according to the article it says that the, the way it's trying to tackle it is by in the log grabbing a snippet of the email and then checking on the other side whether or not it's been modified so it, whether or not in flight it's been modified but is that the problem with spam is well, it the problem well, that, that these emails are getting? I don't know. We, I feel like we already have solutions in flight for that. And, and being modified because I don't think that's the problem with spam. Like S, what is it, SPF and DKIM? I mean, they kind of they kind of already. You can sign. Yeah. You can sign the full contents of the of the email. Right. And 
and in the in the the system, the last SMTP server in the in the in the line can can verify that signature, right? And or the digest verify the assign like a signed digest and and see if that matches. And if it doesn't, it's it's probably spam or it's been tampered with at least. So at least you could warn the user or put it in their spam folder or something. Right. So I don't know if how, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I think they just need to give these, their, um, some of these acquisitions, the guys that acquired in the acquisition, just give them something to do. So they're creating patents. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd never heard of using blockchain for, I mean, I don't know much about fighting spam other than I do. I, I help people set up their DNS with all that crap. And getting set up with, um, DKIM and SPF and whatever. Yeah, but I, I don't know much about it beyond that. Um, although I, when I read that, I did read that there are several other companies that have that use blockchain in fighting spam. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. didn't know that was a thing. But I don't. I, I, I think the the ultimate problem is identifying the spam, not necessarily making sure that your emails are not getting modified in flight. I just I don't know. I, I maybe I just don't understand the spamming world enough as it is. Anyways, uh, did you have any interest in this Zendesk uh, Sunshine? Well. Kind of, although I did actually, I looked up or I tried to find information on it and it, I really couldn't. It's heavy on buzzwords. The, the whole, all your customer data and build customizations on well, our platform. And well, let's, let's, let's talk about what it is real quick. So what I understood it to be, so it's called Sunshine and it's Zendesk's, it's an, it's a new platform or I don't know if they're re-platforming their existing applications or what, but part of it, part of the big announcement is that they have a, it's new that they have a CRM. Mm-hmm. Right, which isn't what didn't they buy base? Is that what it is? I guess so. And I remember, I've, I've, I seem to remember them buying base. So is Sunshine just base? I don't know, but it's um, and they're saying it's it's a it's an all new you know modern CRM. It's built on kind of natively on AWS. And what piqued my interest was the way you know you can extend it and customize it by using and it talked about how using whatever language and frameworks you want and it's on you know it's on AWS your your data is on AWS so you've got you know and I don't know what level of access you have to I mean if, if it's a multi-tenant system it's going to be it's got to be just as you know kind of I don't want to say limited kind of tight I guess as the Salesforce is you know you're yeah. not going to again you're not going to you're not going to drop your jar into Salesforce's server you know they're not they don't let you do that because <laughs> you're running on a highly managed multi-tenant service right that you don't get to control you know how the load balancers work, or memory pools, or or database connection pooling, or you know you're not you don't get to just you know you don't get you know you don't get to control any of that stuff. That's but I don't, I don't I don't think that's the value of AWS. I think it's probably you get your own your own little instance. Well, so it's not multi-tenant then. I I don't know. I'm guessing multi-tenant. What was the other one that we that I was interested in? That was they were like, yeah, we're not multi-tenant. We're multi-instance. Uh, yeah. Um, who was that? Uh, it was uh, Pega. Pega. I think it was Pega. That's Microsoft's approach too, isn't it? I don't know. Like with, with the dynamics? Yeah. I'm not... I think they're multi-instance. They, they might be. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely... A, I don't know. I think, I think there was a time in which multi-tenant peaked in terms of the, the, how it achieved value by, uh, by scale. Because mm-hmm. I mean, you have multiple, you know, again, multiple customers on the same running instance, same database and everything. Well, it democratized now, them, right? But that now everyone was on the same playing field. With the way that infrastructure is so automated, it, it's kind of ripped away that, that value story about multi-tenant. Because you can, you can spin up instances 100% automated and everything, you know, just as automated as anything else. Now you are... I guess one downside still is you are kind of managing multiple services, but that can all be automated too. So I don't know. I, I think, you know, I mean, the, 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 
the hotness of multi-tenant has definitely kind of faded and it's, you know, everything's, you know, infrastructure as a service and networking as yeah. a service and all that. Or, uh, I can't think of what the other term is for it, but. Yeah. That, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't help but pull or infer a few things from the, uh, from the text of their blog post. Uh, one in particular is, uh, I'll read it. It says to, to make matters worse, the legacy CRM platforms force us into proprietary technology that makes it difficult, expensive, and nearly impossible to see the many different dimensions of customers and their data a view that's required in order to make meaningful improvements to the customer experience. Yeah. A little bit of a, I, uh, I think it's funny that I, I'm on, I'm going to go in and say, I'm inferring that they're talking about Salesforce probably. and, uh, Salesforce has been referred to as legacy. Just funny. Mean, how is, um, well, yeah, I mean, Salesforce is 20 years old. It's, it's definitely legacy. You're talking about their, their lean startup, man. Oh, yeah, I um, <laughs> <laughs> They got their lean startup books right right there on on their desks. But is is um is Zendesk not proprietary? I think I think in terms of the platform, the way they're trying to describe it is that they're they're going to have an open data model. They're going to have uh they're going to let you run whatever code you want to run to create your your embedded applications. They'll have this API available for integrations. Yeah. They'll have a an app store that's I'm assuming more open. Um, but yeah, I mean they're they're talking open, open, open. So. I don't know. Right. No, I, 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 and I think they, I think you can do it and be much more open. I mean, some of these um, low code platforms that you don't really, no one even really knows the names of because they just, I don't think they've gotten, they haven't gotten a lot of traction yet. But they're things like they don't even have it. It's not, it's like a CRM that, oh, by the way, you can do some coding to extend it. Like these things are simply like tool sets to build applications. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even think of the name of them. But, you know, the, the, the thing about them is like, yeah, the way you build it is with .NET or Java or, or whatever you want or anything that runs on Heroku, anything that run on a Heroku stack or whatever, you know, the, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, that's, that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's, I mean, think of how much time we spend dealing with limits, dealing with the, you know, compromising our, the way we design things because we don't have namespaces and we don't, you know, we're dealing with, you know, old, old language, old, very verbose languages that have not kept up. I mean, it just, it does take a toll over time. And the other thing is like, it's actually hard to get good experienced engineers interested in like writing Apex, for example. Like they're just like, yeah. Uh, it's is, not, is some it's of not that exciting. A, is some of that a culture problem with Salesforce in that they've kind of cultivated this culture around the proprietariness of their platform and how you can build and write code in their platform Kind of, almost kind of saying, why would you write it on on something else and run it and integrate with Salesforce versus just put it in Salesforce natively? I'm not sure what the question was. <laughs> trying to think through back that again, but yeah, I guess I kind of back- I mean, Salesforce. They're definitely masters of of whatever of whatever message they're trying to get. I, I guess what I'm really trying to say is that when you have a platform like Salesforce, who's who says build it on the platform, you can build it on the platform. You should build it on the platform. No, Benioff said you could build the next Salesforce on Salesforce. Yeah. I mean, that, that'd be interesting. Uh, from a that. cultural perspective, there's no there's nothing driving or even messaging around saying, hey, you can build it in whatever you want and just connect. Right. I mean, even even the Heroku message is kind of lost. In, in in the underlying message that Salesforce has of build it natively on Salesforce, right? Yeah, that's it's not it's still not a coherent message. Though. So like the the appetite for customers yeah. whenever you bring up the subject of well I can build it on Heroku or I can build it over here, it's kind of like oh now this is now this is other custom thing that I have to manage versus it, even though it's the same difference, it's still a custom thing natively in Salesforce, but now I'm I'm doing it externally. 
Yeah, and the, big, the bigger problem is that that is external. The way that it impacts the user experience. I mean, you know, hop into a different. You can't. You can't really embed that in us in Salesforce. It's, it's going to have to be like a. You have to do it one of the approved ways that Salesforce actually lets you kind of embed stuff or whatever. There's just and it's not going to be on platform. It's not going to be in a transaction. If you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, but I mean, if you're building it on Heroku, right? It, it depends on how you build it. I mean, you have web services. You can have a component to calling into those web services. You can. There's all different ways to kind of connect and make that. But you're not going to be writing. Available. You're not going to be writing code. Transact. You cannot write transactional code outside of the Salesforce platform. If you want to be involved in that transaction and doing stuff in it, you've got to be. It's Apex, right? I mean, oh, you you haven't done Lightning yet, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Starting to. You have to send all your data to an Apex class so you can start a transaction. Yeah. Start doing your DML and then you can pop it back out and tell it the results. It's, yeah. So. Same difference. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the, the market has given Salesforce good feedback on their approach. I mean, they keep growing like crazy. Of course, a lot of that growth is actually not, I mean, if you look at where Salesforce growth is coming from, it's not really sales cloud as much as it is like so a lot of these new things they've bought whatever. But I mean, overall, I mean, Salesforce has grown very steadily and impressively over the past 10, 15 years. And so why do they need to listen to what I'm saying? What? Yeah. I mean, it's working. I do think though that they, they do have, they're going to have more and more of a legacy problem. Like what do they do? What, how do they, how do they evolve this thing? Well, as they get pushed more and more into the legacy bucket, as everyone starts to gun for them and call them legacy, because that's typically what happens. You're top dog and everyone's gunning for you and they call you legacy. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I think if it, I think if it would have been a reasonable effort wise thing to do, I think Salesforce would be letting you run JavaScript on the server or Java on their server. But it's just, it's so, there's so, such a, so much existing infrastructure there. I'm trying, I don't, I don't want to use the word legacy because it's, I mean, it kind of is, but it, it, it's, it's a it's a, got a negative connotation, and I'm not I'm not trying to say they did anything wrong or they've they've done something to make it legacy. It just is, it just is legacy. You can't avoid it. I don't I don't necessarily think it's legacy yet, but and it's I mean why do you I mean why do you think why is it so hard to quit Oracle because it's just you've got so much wrapped around it. It's like it's it, it's such a big Salesforce, such a big machine that you're not going to turn it on a dime. And it's very any any move they make whatsoever is, is just very expensive. Yeah. Does it? But it does make it a bit riper for disruption. It I does. Guess. No, it absolutely does. Yeah. And that's you know we're seeing. I mean, so far I think it's like in you know. I guess that's what I keep looking for. I keep waiting for for that disruption to happen. I keep waiting to see who's going to come up with the the different idea that's going to disrupt yeah, them. Guys on the small side, like the Zendesk, and ones even smaller that are kind of nipping at their heels, and Salesforce is like, yeah, get out of my way, and just kicks them out of the way, right? And then you've got <laughs> you know the the bigger ones, which also have just so many of their own problems, whether it's Oracle or SAP, it's like or even Microsoft. Mm-hmm. It's like they've they've all got their own legacy to deal with, and they're yeah, they try to pave over it with something new and be like, oh, look how new. And it's like, oh, actually, that's, you just paved over your thing and it's like still the same thing, kind of. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's tough. I mean, you have to be able to do it at Salesforce's scale. Yeah. And so, you know, and you have to be able to compete with the, where Salesforce is in the magic quadrant and, and the trust that Salesforce has built up and their perception in the marketplace. Like, Salesforce can kind of do what it wants still. There's still that, the, the, poster child of, of SAS and, and I, again, I think they've got, they've got a good track record. And it's like, and we are, we have, and I think we crossed this line a long time ago, but now it's, you know, you don't get fired for buying Salesforce. 
It's right. like you didn't get fired for buying IBM or Dell or whatever back in the days. Dude, you got a Dell. Yep. <laughs> I, I I think this is probably the first company in, that I can recall that's actually trying to compete with Salesforce with a platform. There are other CRMs that are trying to compete with Salesforce with industry-specific solutions or just, you know, better whatever whizzing UIs and things. But I think this is the first time I've seen an article where someone's really trying to compete with them at a platform level that's not the Oracle or the Microsofts of the world. I'm not even sure they are. I mean, there's, I, again, I couldn't find enough substance on this Sunshine thing, so we'll, we'll see. It, to actually be a serious competitor of Microsoft takes, or sorry, of, of Salesforce, I don't think, I don't think Zendesk can, can do it. Maybe, maybe on the small business end. But definitely, well, I'm sure don't. people they said just, that about Salesforce too when they started. One out. one day they did, but they just slowly grew and grew and grew until the next thing you know, it's like, oh wow, they're like an enterprise software company now. The no software company is now an enterprise software company. <laughs> they're always software. Well, John, I think we need to wrap it up. Yeah. I got. Um, I had one little thing. Let me let me let me play this. Actually, this is uh, this guy Peter Schwartz. You've probably seen before. I've I've actually had a couple different random conversations with him, just like in hotel lobbies and stuff. He's usually just hanging around. But he's there, I think he's like a VP of strategic something, but he, I think he's one of these futurists too. He, I don't know if he calls himself that, but he seems like one of these guys who's always doing futurist stuff, talking about futurist type stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to have to stop this kind of at some random point because it gets boring. As we look at AI, help or hindrance? Big help. Look, uh, AI is not going to replace people. It's going to make people far more capable. And no place is that more dramatic than actually in, fin- in financial mm. technologies. What's happening is AI is working alongside human beings to enable them to operate and do things where they don't have to think about the most mundane things. They can focus on the creative, the interpersonal, working with other human beings, and so on. So I think AI is a big help, not a hindrance. I agree with that. I, I think this I whole mantra that AI is going to yeah. take over the world and fourth industrial revolution, you're not going to have a job and get in line for cheese and bread. I just, I think that's a horrible a horrible depiction of our future. Yeah, and I, I know you believe that. I'm not sure I do, and I also have to consider who this who's a, this guy's employer is. And you know, Salesforce is out there trying to be trying to say, even though we're we're creating the technology that potentially, if you believe some of these people are going to put people out of a bunch of jobs, we're actually the ones who are like you know saving people, and we've got this trailhead thing, and we're like we're employing or causing all these people to be able to be employed or whatever. Again, getting getting out in front of that issue. So I I don't know. I also, I'm just skeptical of the where AI is and how ready it is, and and really how even in my lifetime, like I don't know. I mean, it's going to take over some things, but they're going to be the lower value things. Well, I think I think the industry. Well, I don't, I, it was the media. I shouldn't say the industry, but I think the media really jumped the gun, and someone jumped on the AI bandwagon and wanted to call something AI that really wasn't AI. Yeah, I mean, AI has been around since the '60s. I mean, pretty much. I mean, the the, the ideas they're implementing now were, but I think, are actually not even new ideas. No, I mean, but like, I think the media has has latched onto it and painted it as as this new coming of of Matrix style artificial <laughs> intelligence that just isn't. We're not there. Yeah, but they, but they want to paint it as that, and the, and they're because it gets clicks. It, it's it's definitely gonna it's gonna automate a lot of types of jobs. Yeah, you know, I I still see it as a tool. I still think it's a tool, just like any other tool yeah, that we gonna, have. It's gonna it's gonna take your order at the drive through. It's gonna it's gonna replace a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to. It will temporarily, and then it'll come back to people. 
Think about all the call centers that replaced everything with, with these stupid I've, phone things where you had to talk and people were screaming at it or you had to press buttons and people can't find where they're going. It's going to come out to people after, and, after and what we did win it go the down? robot war. What did we see? We saw a bunch of advertisements of, of you're not going to get a robot, you're going to get a real person. And people calling people going, oh, I have a real person, let's talk. I mean, it's it, it'll, it'll, it'll be a pendulum. It'll come back to the middle. Yeah. Yeah. It might. I don't know. Whoa. Not sure about There's some that. people writing some paragraphs in here. I know. All right. Well, we have also SAP who bought this Qualtrics for like eight billion dollars. I mean, kind of dwarfs any any. I, I didn't any. I didn't know about this. Yeah, what? Uh, it kind of dwarfs any any acquisition that Salesforce has made. I, they, the interesting thing was, I thought, oh my, they, wow, they super overpaid. And there, of course, there was talk about how they overpaid for them, but they just they just had an IPO, I guess, or at some point had an IPO and were valued at five billion dollars at its IPO. So I'm just like, how does? And I don't even know what Qualtrics does. I mean, there's some kind of. Let's see, what are they? But it's you know it's it's supposedly that of course the narrative is it's it's so they can uh, compete against uh, Salesforce. So it's I don't know what do they do? The hell does, does anybody know what Qualtrics does? It's it's something it's AI and it's you know it, it just knowing more about the customers and feedback management or whatever and so I don't know I, I again I don't I don't know much about how SAP and even Oracle software, I just don't know. I'm not on playing those spa- that space, mm-hmm. and but so I don't know how much this, and I don't know how much of like you know Salesforce's like their Einstein based or enhanced stuff. I don't know how much of that is real, and I ne- I don't hear anyone in the real world. I don't come across it in the real world. Yeah, I hear it. I've been here to Dreamforce forever, or, for, or at least for a few years, but. Yeah, I've yet to see it. I mean, the most I hear about Einstein is is analytics because they've rebranded Wave to yeah, you rebrand existing things and and yeah, to, you know have it now it knows how to do uh, statistical regression or something linear regression. No, it's but, just the same old analytics platform. It doesn't do anything. Well, for when you. it comes to like tr- trying to predict or trying to give you, it doesn't know. It doesn't have that. Trying to tell you what to do based on oh, data. that's different. So you have Einstein analytics, which replaces the whole BI tools basically. What was that? What was it called? Um, Wave. It was called Wave, Wave yeah. and then it was what um, something else, something cloud. I've know, still never cloud. done much with with that whole the whole Wave thing. Yeah, yeah. You were you got into it a, a, for a little. I bit did, there. but I haven't I haven't kept up with it. And I still have people asking me questions when they get errors and things. I'm like, I I'll do my best to answer them, but I I really haven't touched it. Yeah, there hasn't been much demand for me to touch it, which is kind of odd because we have we have other people that are touching it, and I'm not the one touching it, which is weird. Touching a lot of things. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up because I I gotta go pick up the kids today. Oh yes. Oh, and we did this show sober. We did actually. <laughs> probably sucked. No, I mean, it's probably better actually. Oh no. Anyway. Um, okay. Well. Um, Doing a wrap up with a few things, a few mentions. Okay. Um, Brett, thank you for the books. We got them. Uh, I plan on reading it. I meant to read it, read it last week, but I left it here at the office, so now I got to read it. It's called Getting to Know Vue.js, Learn to Build Single-Page Applications in View from Scratch by Brett Nelson, friend of the show. Yeah, so, well, first of all, congratulations on getting the book out. That's, yeah, exactly. You know, that's got to be a big, I always hear kind of nightmare stories about that, about so, how difficult that is. Yeah. Like you're in the middle of writing a book and like, you know, they, fortunately their view is not in the, has, is, is still writing the whole, I think it's the 2.x thing, but it sucks when like you're in the middle of writing a book and they do like a major version release. It's like, <laughs> crap, now you got to redo your... <laughs> 
you know, most of the book, all the screenshots, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh my gosh, what a mess. But he avoided that, but still, still a big accomplishment. So congratulations, Brett. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then second, I want to mention openforce.org, open-force.org. Still going strong. Um, there's the, the listing has gotten huge. It's gotten a lot bigger. Um, so if you're interested in that. Oh, really? I need to, I need to revisit. Yeah. It. Yeah, it's growing. It's hmm. growing. That's awesome. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of activity around that. So if you're interested, go to openforce-open-force.org. I didn't, I didn't use W's. No, I'm proud of you. Yeah, I'm Steven learning. Noe is proud of you. I'm learning. Um, so yeah, definitely check that out. All right. And then uh, we talked about Slack. So just join the Slack if you're not in. Yep. It's, uh, it's a very helpful place. And for our live shows, that's where we're doing the chat. So just. That's true. I think yep. we said that already, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, info at gooddaysforpodcast.com if you want to send us an email. What else, John? That's it. Check us, us on reviews. Socials, yeah. reviews. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Mark your calendar to join us live. Uh, do your thing, John. <laughs> You're supposed to set me up, but you never and do, nope, so nope. you don't these days. And you know what? And to that, I say good day, sir. <laughs> you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. <laughs>